Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a teaching series called Onward, a study in the book of Acts. Together, we're learning how to live as an ordinary people, empowered to continue Jesus' mission. Thanks for listening. Have you ever stopped to think about how does God work out his plan in the world? How's he do it? Well, if you're following along in the notes, I'll just lay it out here right away. God changes the world by inviting ordinary people to join him. God changes the world by inviting ordinary people to join him. And now that's his plan. He wants us to participate with him. He could do it all by himself, but he invites us to join him. And that's what we've been learning in this series called Onward. How do we continue moving onward with Jesus and joining him in his mission? And if you're following along, if it's okay to give you two lines in a row, if that's not too overwhelming, he's looking for anyone whose heart is completely his. He's looking for anyone, anyone whose heart is completely his. Uh, years ago, when I was in college, uh, a fellow student shared 2 Chronicles 16.9 with me. I've never forgotten it. Here it is. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. And so as we think about this, um, we're going to look at a passage today in Acts chapter 5. And I want to invite you to turn to Acts chapter 5. If you're getting used to your Bible, it's in the last fifth of your Bible there. And uh, again, if you're using one of the black Bibles, please know that if you don't own a Bible, we always invite you to take one of those black Bibles home. We'll replace it. We want everyone to have a copy of God's word, but it's on page 886. So as we think about how God works in the world, let me just say, you can probably see in the notes here that I've noticed that he takes, he takes us through a process that usually involves some phases. So I've listed them there. First, there's the assignment phase. Next is this think it over phase. And finally, the defining moment phase. Now I'm gonna explain all these in just a little bit, but I want you to know in this passage of Acts 5, 12 through 42, that's what's going on here. They've gotta process that. They've gotta decide how to join them, whether or not to join them, what it would mean to join them, all that. But before I unpack this, you know, before we prepare for communion, I just want to ask you, have you noticed that I've been getting the short end of the stick as far as how long the passages are that I have to preach on? Has anybody noticed this? Uh, like some of the other guys get eight verses or 15 verses. I got 31 verses that were handed to me this, this morning. So uh, is it okay if I just feel sorry for myself for a second? The point is, is that I'm not going to talk about all 31 verses this morning. But there is a verse that I was drawn to more than any other in this passage this week that I wanna highlight. And then I wanna definitely walk through what's happening in these verses as we think about the assignment phase, the think it over phase, and the defining moment phase. And the verse is found in the middle of your notes in the middle gray box, Acts 5, 29. Would you mind reading it with me? Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. Now, I don't, you can say those words in a certain kind of tone. We must obey God. You can say it like that. That's not how they were saying it. They were saying, look, they were saying this with conviction. They were saying this from a place of humility. We must obey God rather than human beings, rather than human authority. And we want to see how they got to that place 
of joining God, even though it meant danger, even though it cost them to say those words, maybe more than it would cost us sometimes to say those same words, they said, we must obey God. Wow. And the watching world took notice that God was doing something in these people's hearts. So uh, would you mind if you pray with me and then we'll unpack um, this passage. So Lord, thank you so much uh, for meeting us as, as we prepare to take communion. Would you show us what you want us to know and what you want us to do? In your name we pray, amen. Okay, so first of all, let me just say that if, as far as the background, last week Steve uh, taught us about how God was rolling in the church there, how things were moving forward. And before that, Brian had taught us about how they prayed. So what we see, we saw last week, is that God is answering their bold prayers. He's answering their prayers. And they're in, in Acts 5, uh, 1 through 11, we also see this. But in Acts, at the end of Acts 4, we see how generosity just broke out in the church. Courage, boldness, they're preaching. Uh, God's stretching out his hand to heal through the apostles. And so there's this powerful thing happening, this answer to prayer. Uh, but what I want you to notice is that also, as we saw last week, is that several people named Annas, a couple people named Ananias and Sapphira decided that they were more interested in image than actual character. And so they decided to look like they were generous, even though they weren't being generous. And we saw that corruption and God dealt with it. And look at verse 11 in chapter five. This verse tells us the kind of tone that was going on. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Great fear. Now what's that mean? Does that mean that everybody now is afraid that God's gonna whack them one? That's not what it means. It means that there, there was a return among both believers and unbelievers of a healthy reverence for God. There's something that can happen when you and I get cocky or careless in the way we treat God and act with God that needs to be corrected sometimes. And that's what was going on here. And it had a correcting effect that was powerful. We see then that they begin to heal and you just go, man, this is so good. But notice in verse 17, what's going on. Then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees, we learned about them a couple weeks ago, were filled with happiness, right? Is that what it says? No, it says they were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles, I should say again, and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. You know what keeps us from obeying God sometimes? Fear. And fear, sometimes fear of what other people think, and that's what's going on here. Have you ever seen Proverbs 29, 25? It says something about this. It says, fearing people is a dangerous trap 
but trusting the Lord means safety. The fear of the man is a snare, the old translation used to say. Now notice, it goes on and says, the apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Now, here's what I, here's what I want to just mention before we uh, unpack this passage. I told you a couple weeks ago that the Sanhedrin, which was like the Jewish high court, the Supreme Court in Israel, was made up of several groups, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and then some of the other scribes and teachers of the law. The point is, is that the Sadducees were always the family from which the high priest comes from. Now, the Sadducees, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, is they didn't believe in the supernatural. So they didn't believe in the resurrection and they did not believe in angels. So I find this quite humorous that the way that God deals with the apostles is he uses an angel to get them out of the jail. And in a way, the Sadducees don't know what to do about that. Someone has said that when you don't believe in the resurrection and you don't believe in angels, that's what makes you sad, you see. Does it make sense? So the point is, here's the assignment phase, okay? Notice this. Here's how God works. God gives a person, if you're following along, a specific assignment or action to take. This is how it all gets started. God gives a person a specific assignment or action to take. He's done this all along. So with Mary and Joseph, you can talk about Abraham. You can talk about Noah. You can talk about Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You can talk about Esther, Ruth. You can talk about all different people. You can read chapter 11 in Hebrews and see all the different people where he gave them a specific assignment or action to take. This is all throughout scripture. And you may say, well, like, how do we know that? So if you're following along, notice this. Here, God instructs his apostles to tell people of this new life. Do you see that in that first gray box, verse 20? Do you mind reading that with me so we can see what the specific assignment or action that he gave them to take? Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. Now, this is consistent with the book of Acts so far. Acts 1.8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So this is consistent, but here the angel now says, look, I know they put you in jail, but I've got a different plan this time around. I'm going to use an angel to bring you out and notice how specific it is. Go, stand in the same temple courts you were just arrested in and tell them all about the new life. They couldn't say, um, I don't know what you want us to do, Lord. It was absolutely clear. The assignment was crystal. But you and I may say, well, you know, an angel spoke to them and sometimes they had opportunities to hear God and stuff like that and audible voices. What about us? I mean, sometimes he doesn't work like that all the time. How does he speak? So years ago when we studied uh, Experiencing God by Henry Blackaby, many of us were moved by some of the things he helped us understand about how God speaks today. Here's just an excerpt. God speaks by his Holy Spirit through the Bible, prayer, circumstances, and the church to reveal himself, his purposes, and his ways. You come to know God by experience as you obey him, and he accomplishes his work through you. The pattern of God speaking is found throughout the Bible. The method he used to speak was different from person to person. What is important is they knew it was God, and they knew what he said. 
Over and over again, when you sense God speaking to you, you'll be amazed at how fluent he can speak you. And they knew it. And they knew exactly what he wanted them to do. And so they had to, next, it moves them to what? The think it over phase. So if you're following along, notice this. That when God gives a person a specific assignment or action to take, that person knows what to do and feels the weight of responsibility. That person knows what to do and they feel the weight of responsibility. They, 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 there's something stirring in their heart. They can't exactly explain it. There was a little boy that was once asked, how do you know when God's wanting you to do something? He said, well, when my dad takes me fishing, sometimes when I'm holding my line out there, I'll feel the tug and I know there's something on the other end of the line pulling me towards it. And I know the same way when God's working my life, I feel the tug. And so when you think about how God works, have you ever felt his tug? Have you ever felt that weight of responsibility? Like, I know he wants me to do this. I know it, one, because it challenges me and it's not how I normally think. I know it because it's consistent with the scripture. I know it's because he wants me to care about somebody that maybe I wasn't caring about, but I know it's God and I know what he's saying to me. The thing is, I gotta think it over because this scares me or this challenges me or this isn't convenient or whatever it might be. Now in this situation, notice what happened. When they brought him back in and said, we told you, we told you to cut this out. And they've already been arrested now twice. And also they've been threatened again and again. And so they get, they're probably thinking to themselves, I don't know if I want to spend the rest of my time in jail all the time. I mean, is this worth it? Is this following Jesus? Like what, what is this all? And so I don't know how you think about these people. Sometimes we think that they're just completely different than us. You have to remember that just a few months before, these same people had been so nervous when Jesus was arrested, they scattered. These are ordinary people. But God is taking them through a process where he's teaching them how to obey him. And they're in this think it over phase when they have this. I mean, these people were daunting to stand in front of. They didn't feel as educated. They didn't feel as adequate sometimes, but God was becoming their adequacy. And so they say these incredible words. Would you read them again with me in chapter 5, verse 29, in the middle gray box, please. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. So they're, they're, they're thinking it over. And if you're following along, the apostles consider and count the cost to obey. They consider and count the cost to obey. We've mentioned this a lot, but when Jesus called people to follow him, in the United States, we've kind of taken the edge off sometimes in our teaching. But here's how Jesus spoke publicly when people were thinking about whether or not to follow him. Here's what he said on the front end, Luke 14. If you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. But don't begin until you count the cost. In other words, if you have never come to the place where you're willing to deny yourself, die to yourself, not let yourself be in first place in the driver's seat. You can't follow me. He's not saying you're not good enough for me. He's saying you can't pull it off. It's impossible. If you're going to continue to try and be the Lord, one of us has got to be the Lord. So you got to decide. And so when you're thinking it over, you know, he says, don't just make quick, flippant decisions. Count the cost. Understand it may cost you to follow me. And that's what's going on here. They know. And again, I don't know if you can picture them in jail, 
Do you realize they had to process through insecurities? They had to process through fears. They're human beings. They knew that they could get beaten or killed. And, uh, but notice what they do, what they do. So they go from the assignment phase to the think it over phase, and it comes to the defining moment phase. And if you're following along in the notes there, notice that that person either obeys or disobeys God. This is the defining moment. When God gives an assignment, you and I have to think it over. We have to consider it. We have to count the cost. But at some point, it's either put up or shut up. It's either fish or cut bait. It's either a defining moment. It's either a moment of truth for us. And so what does that look like? And notice what the disciples did. And if you're reading along in verse 30, the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And in these three verses, 30, 31, and 32, actually these four verses, 29 through 32, notice the book ends. It starts with obey, and it ends with obey. But notice that what they do. They preach Jesus. They talk about this new life. Rather than condemning them, they say, look, I know you want us to stop saying this, but you need to know the facts. God raised this Jesus who you can't stand to new life. And even though you killed him, God raised him to the right hand of God. That's the, the supreme place of authority. So you're going to have to deal with him one way or the other, even though you can't stand hearing us say this. But you need to know that the reason why God did that and he gave his Holy Spirit is so that you and I could know repentance. We could change our minds and we could know his forgiveness. The last word does not have to be your participation in his crucifixion. The last word could be is that you hear this good news and instead of fighting it, receive it. And they hold it out. They're faithful. They obey. They obey. In fact, if you're following along, the apostles keep on sharing the good news of Jesus. They keep on sharing the good news of Jesus. Now, I just want to stop here and just say, I don't, I don't know how this is hitting you, but I was just reflecting on some of the things where God's had to teach me to obey, and then sometimes I did, and sometimes I didn't. When I was a kid, uh, we lived in Danville, Illinois, and all of our houses in those days were built in such a way that our houses backed up to a great big backyard, just a huge open field. And it was flanked on um, both ends with houses. On one end of the house was probably the oldest house in the neighborhood, so it was a super long lot, and it had a five stall garage that was open, no garage doors, so it was really old. And uh, then at the top, it had an attic. And facing towards where we played baseball, away from the front of this person's house, was an attic window. And they saw how much we played baseball, so they had had someone put wire over the window so we wouldn't constantly be breaking the window. So one day, um, I, no one was around. My buddies couldn't play baseball, and I was just had some time on my hands. So I noticed there were some rocks there by their uh, garage there. So I just started throwing rocks up there towards the window and just hearing it clink on the window. And uh, as I started doing it, I thought, I'm just going to throw it a little harder and a little harder. 
Eventually, I just broke right through that window. And uh, because I'm so godly, I ran into the house and hid. <laughs> now, as I thought about it, I thought, I just, I, I, it was a think it over thing, because I knew that I had an assignment. What was my assignment? Jeff, you need to go to your neighbors and tell them you broke that window and make it right. I mean, that was across the tick of my mind. Like, I knew it was God, and he knew exactly what he said to me. There was like, okay, you can call it my conscience, you call it whatever, but God was speaking to me. So I remember that, I remember thinking, well, no one saw me. They're elderly, so they never get out. They'll never see that broken window. Uh, and, uh, you know, um, I, I, think, I think we're good. But every night when I'd be laying in bed, oh my goodness, uh, that, I felt the weight. I knew what he was saying to me. And I felt the tug. But I just remember thinking, I, I don't want to pay that price. When I knew it was going to probably cost me to replace the window and I had a paper out and stuff like that. And Anyway, you, you've, you've been through this. So, so anyway, one day I finally realized this is a moment of truth. I either have character or I don't. God kept showing me those neighbors, you can't say you love your neighbor when you don't treat their stuff with respect. And so one day I remember I thought, I, 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 uncle, I got to do something here. And I walked over to their house, and it was not that far of a walk, but it was one of the longest walks I'd ever taken. And as I walked up on their porch, I can still remember, my heart is beating out of my chest. I knock on the door. They open the door. I said, hi, my name's Jeff. I live right over there, not very far away from you. And a number of months ago, I think it was actually a year, a year ago, I broke your window. And I just want to tell you that I'm sorry I was wrong, and I'm willing to pay for it but I need to ask you to forgive me. And I'll never forget, they looked at me and they said, you know, that old building, we've just kind of let it go, so don't worry about it, but thanks for coming and telling us. And I remember thinking to myself, I wish I would have known that from the beginning that they were gonna <laughs> say that to me. I would have lost all that sleep and all that, right? But here's what I do remember. As I walked home that day, I didn't walk home, I skipped. I knew that I had obeyed, even though I'd put on a terrible clinic of obeying quickly. I knew I'd obey God. And so I don't know what it looks like for you. But notice, this isn't the only time they obey. In fact, I count three times they obey. They obey by going in the temple courts. Then they get arrested. And as they're in front of the Sanhedrin, they obey. And then they obey another time. If you're following along, they obey another command of Jesus after they're beaten. I don't know about you, but when I... Think about being beaten. I don't know if I'd be as motivated to keep obeying right away. But they did. How did they obey? Well, if you look at Luke 6, 22 and 23, Jesus called this one. Look at what he said to them. Blessed are you when people hate you. Excuse me? When they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. Do you notice what they do in verse 40? By the way, I, I, I stopped telling you what happened. So after they, after they obeyed God by telling them, raised him from the dead, exalted him to the right hand of God, gave the Holy Spirit so that we can repent and be forgiven. Look at, look at verse um, 
33. When the Sanhedrin heard this, they were really glad and said, thank you. No, it says when they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. That's what they were going to do. So instead, they kept their bearings. They had Gamaliel, who was one of the respected rabbis in that group, said, hey, let's have them step out. We need to talk. Think it over what you're going to do with these people. And then he gives two examples of how there's been other uprisings, and those were quickly put down. They didn't last. And he says, look, I could tell you more stuff like that, but if something is of human origin, in time, it'll fade. But if it's from God... Not only will it keep going, but you may find yourself even fighting God. And notice what it says in verse 40. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Can I, can I just say something to you? If you've ever gone through a time where God humbled or humiliated, allowed you to be humiliated in front of other people. Um, I, was, I wrote this down a few weeks ago. I can point back to those times and say that in a way, God freshly reset my heart. Even though that wasn't pleasant, I noticed that it kind of cleansed. It kind of cleaned things up in my life. It brought me back to a fresh reverence for God. And that's what's going on. They can actually rejoice. It doesn't mean they loved it. It means they gave thanks in the midst of it and said, Jesus, thank you that we could ever be associated with someone as great as you. That they humiliate you, they humiliate us. We know the fellowship of suffering that we could never know any other way. And so in that, notice this, is what motivates their obedience. Love and trust in Jesus motivate their obedience. How did they spell Love and trust, they spelled it O-B-E-Y. So love and trust motivated. So we saw, sometimes, I'll just be honest, sometimes the only reason I've obeyed is just out of a plain, simple fear of the Lord, healthy fear of the Lord. But there's times where Jesus wants us to know that what motivated them to say these powerful words, we must obey God rather than human beings, is they had a love and a trust for Jesus. Where do I get this? If you look at John 14 that I've listed out to the right, here's the words Jesus said the night before he obeyed God and was crucified. If you love me, show it by doing what I've told you. And then notice what he says in verses 23 and 24, that same chapter. Jesus replied, all who love me will do what I say. My father will love them and we will come and make our home with each of them. Anyone who doesn't love me will not obey me. And remember, my words are not my own. What I'm telling you is from the Father who sent me. This is why when Jesus was restoring Peter, after he had disobeyed, after he had really messed up, you remember the question he asked three times? Peter, do you love me? And when he asked him that, why? Why is that question so important? Because he knew, if you really love me, your love will find a way to obey me. It'll be a different motivation. Then notice also, though, that sometimes it's because of our faith, our trust, our dependence in God that leads us to obey. We go, you know, I don't, this doesn't make sense to me, but I trust you. I trust you. I'm still going to obey you, even though it doesn't make sense in human eyes. Notice what Romans 1, 5, I was noticing this week. Here's just three quick translations. The obedience that comes from faith. 
This is what the Lord's invited us into, this kind of relationship where there is the obedience that comes from trusting him. The obedience of faith, obedient trust, there it is. So is that what motivates you? When you're, when you're on the line there, when you're thinking it over, have you found that those defining moments, ultimately you come back, Lord, I love you. And if you ask me to do this, I'll do it. I trust you, Lord. I'll do it, even though it's hard, even though I don't know what's on the other side. So if you're following along, notice this, that they find fresh strength on the other side of obedience. They find fresh strength on the other side of obedience. Would you read that last gray box with me? Verse 42. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. This uh, last week, I was spending time with a, a friend who's in the hospital and going through a really rough, rough patch. And um, sometimes when I'm there, I'll, I'll just say, could I just, before we pray, can I just sing a song to you? So I sang two or three, but I remember he stopped and said, after I sang this one, that's a good one. I said, I know, I've been thinking about it too. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still. And to all who will trust and obey, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. I remember thinking, that's true. It's really true. And so they never stopped. They kept obeying him. And they kept giving themselves. And there were times they had to think it over again. But they kept coming back to these defining moments. So I want to just ask you as we prepare for communion, what specific action is God calling me to take with him? Would you be willing to consider that question? Is there a specific action or assignment that God's given you that you know? It may be the littlest thing. It may, may be, I just want you to uh, love your neighbor this week by talking to him. It may be, I want you to go to another country. It could be anything. It might have to do with your money. It might have to do with your body. It might have to do with a relationship that you either need to make right or make a break with. I, I have no idea what it might be. I've had many of those, like I've told you in my life. But there was one a number of years ago, and I've shared this story before, where I, I, I knew exactly what God was asking me to do and, and, and telling me what my assignment was if I wanted to join him. And I just, I wrote pros and cons lists. Trisha and I kept praying. And so we were visiting her parents at their church up in the Chicago suburbs. And uh, that day, I, I heard this story. Some of you have heard it before, but I invite you to listen to it freshly. Here's what the pastor told that day. There's a harbor in the town where I take my summer study break. I like to run by it on Fridays because people will drive down to their sailboats that are tied to the docks in the harbor. I'll watch these people unload their coolers and their towels and their food and their drinks. And one couple will unload all this stuff on Friday night. They'll spend from Friday night to Sunday night on their boat, never leaving the dock. 
never untying the ropes. They just spend the whole weekend there. They eat and they drink and they sunbathe, listen to the radio, and then they pack all that stuff back up in their cars and drive home. The next day, someone at work asks them, hey, Phil, what did you do this weekend? And Phil says, we went sailing. Then other couples come down and they unload their cars, stock their boats, and they get a little bored just tied to the dock. And so about mid-Saturday afternoon, they untie themselves carefully back out of the slip and they cruise around the harbor. There's a little restaurant down the river that they can tie up to and go and have dinner. Some of them go out by the breakwater and look at the waves and wind out there. And they don't want any part of that. So they'll take a U-turn and they'll come back, tie up to the dock, load their stuff up on Sunday night. And they go to work the next day on Monday morning. And someone says, Tom, what did you do this weekend? And Tom says, we went sailing. And then there were always the individuals who come down and they unload their cars, stock their sailboats, and throw the ropes off the boat there, leave them on the dock, and they head straight out toward open water. And they sail. They really sail. And they feel the wind in their face, and the spray comes over the side, and they can hear the rushing sound of water sliding alongside the hull. And the boat is heeling over, and yeah, stuff gets spilled, and there's the pitching and yawing and all that. But they see fabulous sunsets and these incredible sunrises, and they have that exhilarating sense of freedom, and they're saying to themselves, this is sailing. When they come back and they tie up at the dock and they pack their stuff on Sunday night and go to work on Monday morning and someone says, hey, Frank, what'd you do this weekend? Frank says, I went sailing. Now this guy's telling this story, and I'm, it's like the Holy Spirit is like zooming in and then he asked this question that nailed me to the floor. What I want to ask you, friend, is who went sailing? And I heard that, and I knew that I was going to need to make a courageous decision and act on it. And a few months later, I did. And that took me to some chapters of my life that sometimes were super hard but I wouldn't trade anything for what happened. And it also ultimately led me here to worship and learn with you. And I, I just, I want you to know, even this week, the Lord showed me some areas that I've been careless or sloppy in my faith and how I need to trust him and obey him. And he wants me to practice. But I'm so thankful I get to practice with you. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.